I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me for our scripture reading for our sermon this morning. We are continuing our series. For those of you who are visiting, we have been doing a series the last few weeks um, on the top three sixteens of the Bible. And we ha- I didn't rank them because they're all inspired by God, so we've just been going in book order of the Bible, canonical order. And today we're going to be in 1 Timothy 3, 16. And what's really interesting is that I first put this series together, went through and got the 316s I wanted to do and decided I don't want to put them in, I'm just going to do them in book order. And so I just, I picked them and then I said, okay, let's put it on the calendar and see how these are going to fall. And it just so happened, right, quote unquote, just so happened that one of the 316s, this one, is about the coming of Christ on Christmas. I didn't plan that, but God seems to know what he's doing. So we'll give him credit. And I just, I looked at it and there it was. First Timothy 3.16 falls on Christmas day. Beautiful. So a little, a little another peek into the, the interesting ways that God shows his hand in our affairs. So I'm going to ask you if you'll please stand with me for the reading of Holy Scripture. First Timothy chapter 3. And I'm going to back up just for a little bit of context. I'm going to read verses 14 through 16. First Timothy 3, 14 to 16. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Paul says to Timothy, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay... You may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. This is God's holy word for us, his people. Let's ask him to bless our time in his word. Father, these next few moments we hand over to you as we have this whole service. But now especially, Lord, we, we have prayed. You've heard our voice in song and in prayer. And we ask now that we would be silent and that we would hear you speak to us through the word that you have given us in the scriptures. You speak to us from your, from your truth today and write that truth upon our hearts and may it stir our affections for our Lord Jesus who was born this day. And we ask it for his sake and for his honor. Amen. You may be seated. One of my favorite Christmas carols is, O Come All Ye Faithful. And I particularly love that line that says, Word of the Father, now in flesh appearing. This happy morning, when Christ was born, I want us to contemplate just who is this Word of the Father. This one who appeared in flesh 
in Bethlehem's manger. In our passage this morning, 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul tells us the faith of the earliest Christians in this one who is born king of angels. In 1 Timothy 3.16, Paul quotes an early creed of the church, a confession of, pa- a confession of faith that Paul received and repeated in this letter. What's really fascinating is there are two or three places in the New Testament where it looks like Paul isn't composing from his own creative imagination the way he composes the rest of his letter. He thinks of what he wants to say and he writes it. And no one's written it or said it before. There's a couple places where Paul isn't composing, but he's quoting. And this is one of those places. And there are a couple like this. And if you, in some of your Bibles, it may be set off in sort of a little block that's sort of got like six different lines to it. And it's sort of set off like it might be poetry or some kind of confession. And New Testament scholars think that's what we have here, is that Paul is actually quoting to us a confession of faith that comes from before Paul wrote this. So Paul writes this letter towards the end of his life in the 60s of the first century. But if, it, but if he's quoting it, that means it existed before, Right? And so this is a confession of faith that seems to come from much earlier in the first century, something that perhaps even goes back to Jesus' apostles. But nevertheless, wherever it comes from, it's a creed that Paul believes he can quote and that his readers, particularly Timothy and Timothy's church, will agree with. This is a common confession of faith that he quotes in the letter. And in this brief little creed or confession of faith... We see the identity of Christ laid out in two parts. So you can take, uh, in my Bible here, it's it's indented off as six different lines. And you can take the first three lines and the second three lines as two different halves, two different parts of the creed. And in the first part, part one, we see the earthly life of Christ. And in the second part, part two, we see the heavenly life of Christ. And we can think of it as a confession of faith in the pre-Easter Jesus and the post-Easter Jesus. The pre-Easter Jesus, in his earthly life, in lines 1 through 3, accomplishes salvation for us. And the post-Easter Jesus, in lines 4 through 6, is Jesus in his heavenly life, where he applies that salvation to us. But where, we should ask, where does the confession begin? And it begins, as you can see, with Christmas, with now in flesh appearing. So before we get into looking at who Christ is in his earthly life and his heavenly life, let's, let's begin where the creed begins and ask, who is this one who was manifested in the flesh, who lived this earthly life and now reigns in heavenly glory. Well, the text begins by calling the faith of this creed a great mystery and a mystery of godliness. Look what it says at the beginning of verse 16. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. Great indeed, we confess, because it's a confession of faith, the mystery of 
of godliness. Now, this is strange language, mystery of godliness. It's not just strange in English, it's a little strange in Greek as well. It's not how you say that in Greek. It really reflects more of its original background, which is more of a Semitic or an Aramaic background. Aramaic being a language that Jesus spoke and his apostles spoke that's related to Hebrew. And that's why they think it it really comes from much earlier than Paul, because it really reflects maybe its Aramaic origins. So this goes way back to the earliest disciples. And there's another place where Paul quotes an early creed. It's in Romans chapter 1, first couple of verses. And in that part of the creed, Paul does something similar here. Of course, he's quoting it. And it calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Holiness. Nowhere else in the Bible does does this happen, the spirit of holiness. It's an odd way to say that, which also tends to reflect its Aramaic background. It's much earlier than Paul. It doesn't, doesn't originate in Greek. Paul always calls the Holy Spirit just the Holy Spirit. He might say the Holy One, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy One, something like that in Greek. But he never says the spirit of holiness And what does that mean, the spirit of holiness? Well, it means holiness is a characteristic of the spirit. So it is, it means the Holy Spirit, but it's an odd way to say it. Well, here it's something similar, mystery of godliness. Godliness characterizes this mystery. It's sort of a a godly mystery or a mystery that has to do with God. And it's it means something like the secret at the heart of our devotion. The mystery or the secret at the heart of our devotion. Throughout what's called the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, Paul uses this word godliness a lot. And when it applies to a person, it has to do with your own personal reverence and devotion for God or for Christ. It's your piety. But it can also be applied to your faith. Or, and if it's applied to your faith, it almost means something like your religion So maybe some translations, I don't know what yours might say, but sometimes it'll say great is the mystery of our religion or something like that. And in that sense, it's talking about our worship, the the mysterious secret at the heart of our worship, of our faith, The, the secret at the heart of our devotion or the wonder of our worship, something like that. Great is this mystery of our devotion for Christ and our worship of God. Now, in the New Testament, this word mystery, it usually means a secret or a hidden truth that was formerly unknown or obscure in some way, but has now been revealed. Something that was formerly unknown, but has now been revealed. And Paul tells us this is what he means by the word secret over in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 3 to 5. Listen to how Paul talks about this mystery being revealed. He says, the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So this confession is stating the revelation of the mystery. This confession of faith is telling you what the secret is, what the mystery is. The unveiling of the mystery began when He was manifested in the flesh. But we should ask, who is this one, this He, who was manifested in the flesh? 
And what's interesting is this. When He is revealed, the mystery is revealed. You see, normally if, I, if you told me, Wesley, I've got a secret. I've got a secret. And I say, ooh, I love secrets. Tell me, the, you know, give me, the, give me the gossip. Tell me the secret. Normally what I'm expecting you to do is say something to me. Whisper it in my ear or something. Tell me something. Reveal a fact that I don't know but really want to know. But here, when God wants to reveal his secret, to tell you his secret, reveal his mystery, he doesn't whisper something in your ear and he doesn't tell you something. He points you to a person. He points to a manger. He points to a child. He directs you to the man, Jesus. See, the great mystery at the heart of our devotion, the great secret and wonder at the heart of our worship, the great mystery is not a mere fact. It's a person. It's a person who came in the flesh. Now, we know His name is Jesus. But what makes Jesus so great and so mysterious? Who is? Who is this Jesus? The Bible tells us many things about who this is and why He is so great and why He is so deeply mysterious. So let's start with where the Bible starts. Who is this Jesus? First, Jesus is the man between God and humanity. The man between God and humanity. If you back up from our passage in chapter 3 to chapter 2, and look at verse 5, Paul says this. He says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. There's one God, that's the Father, and there's one mediator between God and men, humanity, and the one in between God and humanity is himself human, is himself a man. Jesus is not one of the rabble, one of the sinful humans who need a mediator, but rather He is the one who's above humanity and below the Father. And He Himself is a man. Jesus is the man between God and humanity. He is a human being who mediates between God and humanity. The first thing to know about who this Jesus is, is that when it says He was manifested in the flesh, that wasn't a mere show or a pretense. He wasn't pretending to be human. He wasn't, like sometimes angels in the Bible, like angels are not physical things, they don't have physical bodies, but sometimes in the Bible they show up and the, and the text says, you know, the man Gabriel came and said this to me, but Gabriel's an angel. Well, what's going on? Well, he, he appeared to be human, but he wasn't really. And then once the, once the story ends, Gabriel doesn't stay human for the rest of his life. He, he goes back to heaven or wherever Gabriel goes. And that's not what we're talking about here where Jesus just sort of looks human, but that He really is a man, just as much as you are fully, thoroughly, and authentically human, so was Jesus. Thoroughly and fully, in the most complete sense of the word human being, 
he was a human being. He was a man. And he was a man with real flesh, real bones, real blood, real skin. He was an actual flesh and blood human being who was really born from a real mom on a real day in real history. He became real flesh, manifested in the flesh. And he is the human being who mediates between God and humanity. And what that means is, Jesus is the one that God has appointed to be in that role of Messiah. This is part of what it means to be the Messiah, to have the power and the authority of God to do what only God can do. That God would raise up his human Messiah and give him the power to forgive sin and to raise the dead and to cleanse the lepers and give him the supernatural wisdom to teach God's own thoughts to us so that when Jesus opens his mouth, you hear God speaking. Whereas in the Gospel of John, he can say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Which doesn't mean that he is the Father. It just means that God is in Christ doing his work and his wonders for his world. He is the man who has the power to atone for our sins. The only person whose sacrificial death can actually save us from our sins. If I die for you, it might be noble, it might be nice, you might remember me till the day you die, but it won't take you to heaven. It can't atone for a single one of your sins. But he is unique, he is the mediator. He's not one of the humans who needs a mediator, he is the mediator. And he is the man manifested in the flesh to mediate between God and the rest of us. Now, how can a mere man have such a place of power and authority? How can any human being have such greatness? And Paul's answer, as we push further into the mystery... Paul's answer is that Jesus isn't simply a man, but he is a man from heaven. He is a man from heaven. Now, he says this in 1 Corinthians fifteen forty-seven. Paul says he, he is comparing Adam and Jesus. And he says... The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. So we got to clarify our picture. Jesus is fully human, just like all the humans he intercedes for, just like me and you. But lest we think incorrectly about Jesus, Paul stipulates that he's the man from heaven. You see, he's not one of the men down here among all the other humans, that God sort of says, oh, he's super righteous, he looks like a good candidate for Messiah, and then he picks Jesus and lifts him up to be the mediator between God and humanity. Jesus doesn't start down here and come up. Jesus starts up here and comes down. He is a man, as truly human as you and me, but he is a man from Above, not below. Jesus says this explicitly in the Gospel of John to his Jewish opponents who are questioning his, his authority, questioning who he is. And in John chapter 8, verse 
23, Jesus said to his opponents, You are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. So this is a man who is not from below, but from above. This is someone who was with the Father before his birth in Bethlehem's manger. This is someone who was with the Father before he was with Mary. He comes down, not up. So that Jesus being the mediator isn't that God picked a man and exalted him. It's that God sent someone who humbled himself. Someone who was higher up and comes farther down. Jesus was with the Father before He was born in Bethlehem's manger. And in the fullness of time, He was manifested in the flesh as the mediator. In the Old Testament, we have a glorious prophecy that that the Gospel of Matthew quotes. It's in the book of Micah. In Micah chapter 5, verse 2. In Micah 5, 2 it says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah... From you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. He will come forth to be the ruler of Israel, as he is born in Bethlehem, to Mary. But his coming forth didn't start in Bethlehem. His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So Jesus descends from a height and he comes from the past, from the eternal ages past. And he comes down and is manifested in the flesh. Paul this, explains this further in his second letter to Timothy as he says in chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. A truly astonishing passage of Scripture. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1... Verses 9 and 10, he says, he says, God saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Just a breathtaking passage of Scripture. With all the same language of our text. Manifesting, appearing, revealing The great mystery is that Christ was with the Father before the ages began. And God and the Son conspired together to save 
a people for his name. So that father and son together have a purpose and a grace that was for you, Christian, before the ages began. From of old, from ancient days, from all eternity, this was part of the plan that the son was with the father always. There was never a time when God the Father became God the Father. He wasn't childless and then had a son. Congratulations, it's a boy. No, he's always been the father. And he's always had his son. This is the man from heaven. This is the mediator who comes down and assumes human flesh. And there's nowhere else that this greatness of the mystery is captured more powerfully than in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, glory as of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the mystery, the man from heaven. And his greatness is unsurpassed. And the wonder of who he is cannot be fully fathomed. Now let us turn to the rest of the passage and see what this one, this great and mysterious one, this mediator and Messiah, the one who was always with God and became man and came in the flesh for us, Let's turn to the rest of the passage and see what this one, this Christ, this man from heaven has done to accomplish and apply salvation. So if we turn back to the text and we look at those six lines, lines one, two, and three, and lines four, five, and six, first three lines are the pre-Easter Jesus, the, the earthly life of Christ, and the next three lines are the heavenly life of Christ after his time on earth. And I want us to look on this point at the first five lines, and we'll take the last line for the end. Look at lines one through three where Christ accomplishes our salvation. What Paul points to as he quotes this creed, what this confession points us to are the three big markers of the earthly life of Christ. It starts with, and it's all chronological. Everything here is chronological. He was manifested in the flesh. That's Christmas. That's the incarnation. Vindicated by the Spirit. Now that word vindicated is the exact same word that Paul uses when he talks about justification. As in justification by faith. When God forgives you of your sins and declares you to be righteous in His sight. That's justification. But that word also means vindication. And the difference is this. When you get justified, you are guilty and God pardons you of your crimes of your transgressions of His law, and He declares you righteous. He forgives, pardons, and declares you righteous. But you were guilty. That's justification. Vindication is, you were never guilty, but you've been falsely accused, and you've been charged with crimes you did not commit, and it goes to trial... And the, and the judge finds in your favor. He vindicates you. This man was not guilty. He, was not, he is falsely charged with these crimes. He has been innocent all along. 
So you see the difference. When you get vindicated, you were innocent the whole time and the trial proves it. But justification is you were guilty the whole time. The trial proves it, but God pardons you for your sins and he finds in your favor. It's the same word in Greek, but depending on how it's used, it can have these two meanings. And here the translation is exactly right. He was vindicated by the Spirit. You see, Jesus was falsely accused before Pontius Pilate, lied about, mistreated the sinless one, the spotless one, took your sin and mine upon himself and was crucified for your sin and mine. A sin he did not commit, a punishment he did not deserve, a penalty that was wrongly given to him in the eyes of human justice. Falsely given to him. But he took our sins upon himself and took our penalty and took our place. And to vindicate Jesus as being guiltless, innocent and holy, the righteous one, he is vindicated by the Spirit. In other words, God raised him from the dead. He was manifested in the flesh. That's the incarnation. Vindicated by the Spirit. That's the triumphant resurrection. And then third, line three, seen by angels. Here we have the ascension. Where Jesus is born, He lives His life, He's crucified, buried, dies, raised. And where is He raised to? He comes out of that tomb, but He keeps going. He is the mediator between God and men. And he is exalted to the right hand of the Father, as we confessed in the Apostles' Creed. He is seen by angels. He is lifted up above even the angels to be at the Father's right hand, where he rules and reigns on high with all power and authority and glory and majesty. A man from heaven, exalted back to heaven, as the angels peer at him, gaze upon him and wonder in amazement. He's gazed upon by the angels as they hail him as King of kings and Lord of lords. That's how he accomplishes our salvation. Through his coming in the flesh, his death and resurrection and his ascension, Christ has accomplished your salvation. Then as we move into the second half of the, of the confession, lines four and five, the progression continues. That's pre-Easter. Now we come to post-Easter. After the, after the resurrection and ascension, we get the next three things. We'll just look at the first two, lines four and five. Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world. Proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world. Now that Christ has ascended, it's time for His followers to go and proclaim who He is, to preach who He is. And notice this this wonderful parallel. He was manifested in the flesh. means He appeared in the flesh. People could see Him, hear Him, talk to Him. They could hear about Him. But if you consider how many people in the first century actually saw Jesus, when you look at the world population, we're talking a tiny fraction of, of the human race actually saw Jesus or even heard about Him. A little bitty fraction. As great as He was, the people on the other side of the world had not heard about Him. So, if he's going to be manifested to the world, he has to be manifested to the world by being preached and proclaimed to the nations. 
And so here we have his manifestation to the nations through the proclamation of the gospel. And that's where we come in. We are to be the ones who reveal him to the world, who to tell people about him, who point people to him, who repeat these stories and point to these scriptures and talk about who he is, the one who came in the flesh. We preach and proclaim him among the nations as we go into all the world. And then as we preach and as we proclaim and as Christ is revealed more and more fully to the world and who he is and what he came to do and what he means for us and for our world and for our future, he is believed on in the world. Believed on in the world as people preach and proclaim, people trust, people believe it. Paul says the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes And just as the Holy Spirit vindicated Christ and raised him up, the Holy Spirit raises the dead in us as we hear the powerful gospel preached. As it goes out to the world, the Spirit raises the dead. He brings dead sinners to life. Whereas before, it's just, you know, Jesus was uninteresting, not not appealing. Okay, maybe I believe in him because I grew up with that, but he doesn't mean anything to my life. And I'm more interested in TV and pizza and anything else sounds better than church and... Jesus is okay, I guess, but he doesn't affect my daily life and I don't think about him and he has nothing to do with me. We go from that to one day he's life, he's glorious, he's treasure, he's everything. How does that happen? You just one day turn on the spiritual lights? No, the spirit raises that dead heart and makes it beat and live again. And the sound of a beating spiritual heart is faith. And it's worship. And it's love for Christ. The Spirit does that. Christ, by His Spirit, is still saying, Lazarus, come forth. And the dead man lives. Except He doesn't say Lazarus. He says, your name. He calls you by name. And out of your spiritual tomb, you come to life. And believe. And just as Christ was vindicated... You get justified. The other sense of that word. As you believe, you are justified by faith. You get raised to spiritual life and you get justified by faith. Where God says, yes, you're guilty. Yes, you're a sinner. But I forgive and I pardon. You are. I clothe you in the holy innocence of the child in Bethlehem's manger. You are as holy as he is. Because by faith in him, his righteousness becomes yours. This is how Christ, by His Spirit, applies the salvation He accomplished to us personally and individually. When we hear the preaching and we trust in Christ, the Spirit, or Christ by His Spirit, does what only He can do. And to conclude, we come to the last line of the confession. The final line, line six. It says... Proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and the last step in the progression, taken up in glory. Taken up in glory. We are the ones, we are the ones who do the proclaiming as Christians, as the church. We are the ones who do the believing, and we are the ones who do the taking up. Some translations say received. He was received in glory. Or received with glory. In other words, it parallels seen by angels. Seen by angels, received with glory. 
It parallels the ascension. And in our experience, we hear the gospel, we believe it, we're raised to new life, we're saved, born again, and then we take up Christ with glory. He doesn't just ascend the throne in heaven, He ascends the throne of our hearts. And He becomes King personally, really, for me in my daily life. My values and priorities and principles The things that animate me, the things I live for, my commitments, what I'm convinced of and committed to changes because He changes me. He now rules and reigns and His will is my will. Our food and our drink is to do the will of the Lord. He ascends the throne of our hearts. And we take Him up and receive Him with glory. And as we do that, Christ enters not only His heavenly glory, but as people believe and as churches are planted and as communities change and families change and neighborhoods change and become servants of King Jesus, all of a sudden Jesus' kingdom is growing and expanding. And that prayer we pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven comes to pass. God answers that prayer. Christ becomes king on earth as in heaven as we bow the knee to him in our personal life, in our families, in our neighborhoods, our communities, our churches, and eventually it will expand until the whole earth bows the knee to Christ. As Paul says in Philippians 2, every knee bows and every tongue confesses Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. As we go and preach, as the faith expands, the kingdom grows, and Christ is taken up in glory. And ultimately, He is taken up with glory as He receives our worship. As He receives our worship. This brings us full circle. The mystery of godliness, the wonder of our devotion, the wonder of our worship is this one that we worship. He is the great mystery. He is the object of our faith. This is how we as the church propagate and preserve and practice the great mystery of godliness. You'll notice that in verse 15 of the passage it says, The church of the living God is a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is the pillar that holds up this marvelous mystery. The church, you and I, we are the keepers of this truth, the protectors of this mystery. We are the ones who hold Christmas in our hearts all year, not just once a year. This great mystery is at the heart of our faith and at the heart of our worship. But remember this, that just because the mystery has been revealed, it does not mean it has been fully explained. We know in part As much as we can. But you will spend an eternity of eternities trying to plumb the depths of this mystery and you will never get to the bottom of it. Of this word of the Father, now in flesh appearing, who has accomplished all these things for us. We will never get to the bottomless glory of this mystery of Christ. And that is going to keep us occupied forever with the wonder and glory of Christ, because there's always going to be a new depth, a new dimension to contemplate as we are with Him forever. And so as we contemplate today this great mystery, the mystery of Christ, may our hearts truly sing to Him, not just today, but every day, 
O come, let us adore him. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would do this miracle in our hearts, that you would make our hearts live and sing, that you would give us the thrill of hope and joy that only comes from Christ on this glorious morning. And we pray indeed that we would truly adore you now and always. In Jesus' name, amen.